because I'm overwhelmed today. I didn't realize that I came on such a special day uh, where we're, uh, I'm going to keep this flyer. I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to root for you, and especially the church planners that have been commissioned here through this organization and your local churches. Man, man, I, I'm so encouraged. I feel like I'm already filled to go back and ready to plant more churches in our area. Um, and so thank you. And um, man, I'd love to support you with prayer, with uh, mentorship, with friendship, with encouragement, and with money. So feel free to um, email me, especially for money at chad at hvcn.org. <laughs> Just ask for all that you want. Listen, he, he, he originally asked me, hey, it'd be great if uh, you come and speak here and meet the guys here. And, because, you know, we're growing uh, in, in numbers and also in diversity and influence. And, like, we have some black guys. We have some white guys preach here. We have some um, um, brown guys. But we haven't had a lot of yellow guys come. And so I'm like, man, like, it'd be great if a yellow guy would represent. And so I was wondering... Um, if you had Francis Chan's number. Uh, <laughs> so Francis couldn't make it today, so I come in his stead today. But really, I'm, I'm grateful to be here, grateful for your influence and your love for the city. I didn't realize, too, also, um, that I've come in a very unique day where um, one of the kids that I actually preached the gospel to when he was in junior high, uh, Jonathan, is planting a church, um, and which is, like, amazing. What a... <laughs> What an amazing journey of letting go of even just the great aspiration of the world to be a medical doctor. And you have to understand, I was, I was, I was actually uh, in medical school too, and so we have a very similar journey. Um, but the difference is your parents didn't disown you. And so, so thank you. Thank you for uh, just your, your commitment. And we really honor you, grateful that you're here and grateful for your immense, not only parental, but your prayer support for your son. It means so much to me. So thank you for that. Um, Chad asked me to preach a sermon <clears throat> or teach on conversion and a missional lifestyle. Um, it was Valentine's Day. I'll never forget. Um, I was with my mother in our doctor's office, and we heard those dreaded words, the big C. Yeah, it was cancer. We're devastated. And so I bought my mom a um, Patti LaBelle concert tickets, and I said, hey, Hey, go have a great time. And, and she went, and she came back, and I went to visit her just to check on her to see how she was doing. And I found her with just a puddle of tears before her with a track, a little gospel track in her hand. And she said, Ryan, how many times do I have to pray this sinner's prayer before I'm saved? I said, Mom, you only have to pray it once. Because it's not based on your life or your work, but it's on the base life of Jesus that saves you. And she said, impossible. There's nothing so good in this world like that. There's no such grace. Well, that night, mom received Jesus to be her Lord and Savior. And from then, she actually shared with my dad, who eventually became a Christian way later in life and lived five years before mom died. And then he also died of cancer. And so I'm a big C guy. Not cancer, but big C conversion. I love conversions. And this is the reason why that I planted a church with 30 friends, 30 close friends of mine near the city of San Francisco to see people come to Christ. And, and we did. 
by God's grace alone, we saw droves of people come through. We longed and we were absolutely centered on the idea that they, we would preach the gospel, we would share, we would walk with them, that we would baptize them in the name of Jesus, Father, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then they'd be launched into a mode of discipleship in which they would become missionaries. This, is, this was our hope. And our hope was, was, was really limited in the sense that our, our dreams were limited. What God brought were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the very first year where we baptized over several hundred people in their very first year, and we never thought that would ever happen. And then all these other people started to come. And then we started to become like a, like, like a mega church. Now, mega church in California is like, you know, 200. And so we're like, not like Texas churches here. But man, we, we were like growing in droves and people were coming through and we we're really excited. And we started shifting uh, a, a philosophy that we didn't realize that was happening, which was initially we wanted to see conversions to make disciples to live on mission. And yet, the program of discipleship to lead them towards mission became two different programs because many people who started to come to our church had inward needs. And we were really filled with adrenaline to try to develop them, to encourage them, to meet their immediate needs. And therefore, eventually, before unbeknownst to us, discipleship became a different program than mission. And all along, we said we wanted to disciple people to mission not have discipleship and mission. And eventually, what ended up happening, the byproduct of that and us getting excited by the number of people that were gathering was this, that mission and evangelism was defined simply as inviting people into your church. That's how it was defined. And this is the result of our church currently where evangelism is one of the weakest areas of our church, one of the weakest. And maybe you can relate, because missional drift is never intentional, but like most churches, we put our attention on the things that are most urgent naturally, rather than working and pressing into the slow, deep, good work of making disciples who live on mission. And so the question is today, how do we turn the tide? How do we turn the tide? And I speak to you new church planters that will plant very soon, you're going to have all these aspirations and you will join the rest of us in the struggle to make missional disciples. How about the rest of us who've tried to make missional disciples? We had all the theology and philosophy in mind, and yet our church, our people, quite don't represent our ideologies and theology. Well, I want to share three convictions that I believe catalyzes disciples in your church. First is, Missional theology is kind of like the trinity of mission. A missional theology that shapes the mind. Secondly, a missional compassion that shapes the heart. And thirdly, a missional discipleship that shapes our practice. And that is kind of like the holy trinity of mission. And so first, let me talk about missional theology that shapes the mind. I want to start by asking the most fundamental question in this room. What is mission? What is mission? And my favorite approach is to simply do a word study. Um, and the word mission comes from the Latin verb missio, which actually means to send. So literally, mission actually happens to, happens to uh, do with the action of sending. Now, the verb to send is used over and over and over again, as you know, in the scriptures. 
And in a multitude of ways, there's a sense in which the whole life of the church, the whole experience of a Christian is rooted deeply in some kind of sending that has a principal foundation in the action of God himself. Why? Because it is God who institutes, it is God who sanctifies, it is God who actually mandates the mission of the church. And let me give you an example of this word send and how it plays through just in the Gospel of John. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, everybody knows John 3.16. Does anybody know John 3.17? Stop it, show-offs. It's my time. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. There's the word sending. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Yeah, you see the motive behind the divine action of redemption that is absolutely crystallized in John 3.16 lies in the action of God to what? Send his son into the world. Now you realize the sending doesn't stop just there because in verse 34 he says, For he, Jesus, whom God sent, there's the word again, utters the words of God and he gives a spirit without measure. So here's Jesus being sent by his Father with word and spirit. Jump down to chapter 17. In, in John chapter 17 we see the glorious climactic high priestly prayer uh, of Christ. And what we see there is, is Jesus praying for his disciples. He says this in verse 8. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. So here in John 3, we see that God sent his son to speak the word of God in the spirit, and now uh, Jesus is giving the words that he received from the Father to his disciples. In verse 18, he says something really critical. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, here we have the basis of the mission of the church. God sends Christ to seek and to save the lost. Now he sends the church. Now you realize this is rather revolutionary because Jesus, when he declared this, he was actually surrounded by people who were considered outcast, pariahs, and undesirables of the Jewish culture. You know, and it was those who were the dignitaries, indeed the clergies and the pastors of the day, who incidentally adopted a rabbinic tradition that basically believed salvation by segregation, by separation. Keep yourself away from anyone who's involved in sin, and that's how you actually secure your redemption. So rather than the Pharisees and the scribes being involved in this passion for the lost and being sent into the world, it was part of their working philosophy to actually isolate themselves from those who are categorized as sinners. Isolate themselves. So Jesus comes here and destroys that paradigm. How? By openly associating with the prize of the culture. That's what he did. In fact, in one of these occasions, the Pharisees started grumbling and complaining about that and said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And it is to that accusation that Jesus tells the parables in Luke 15 about the lost sheep, about the lost coin, about the lost son how the shepherd leaves in 99 to find that one lost sheep. And when he's found, he rejoices over the sinner who repents over the 99 righteous persons. 
Or even the woman who loses a silver coin, and she doesn't simply say, oh, well, I lost uh, this coin. I have many other coins. No, she doesn't say that. She actually sweeps her entire house, and when she finds that coin, she calls all of her friends and has a great party. And the son that's gone and has come back, he, he, the father kills the fattened calf and calls the older brother to say, hey, your brother was once dead, now he's alive. Your brother was once lost, but now he is found. You see, what, what Jesus says here is simply, he says, in, through these parables, he's saying, I, I don't want to declare that I came to save the lost. He's saying, I came to seek and to save the lost. As to say, before you could actually save the lost, you must engage in the activity of seeking first. But it's not easy because we deceive ourselves into thinking that nobody's lost. And there are two principal ways that we do that, where we lose ourselves from the search. First, we become passive towards the world. And secondly, we become the people of the world. And first, let me, let me just briefly describe this passivity towards the world. Passivity towards the world is simply living as if you are uninformed about the needs of the lost. Even here in the Bible Belt. And every time I come to te Texas, something strange happens. Because everybody knows I'm from San Francisco, the Bay Area, where it's radically secular. And somehow, every pastor, every friend, every Christian tends to constantly justify this area to say, oh, this is so hard because you know what? This is the Bible Belt, and we're so annoyed by the cultural Bible Belt Christians that won't live on mission. We're not even know that they're safe. And we continue to talk about this Bible Belt culture. And I think that's rather strange coming from California. Why? Because when God called me to San Francisco, he called me to a hard area. And I don't think you realize how hard of an area this is. I just discovered today that Houston population, the citywide population, is 7 million people. And I looked up a quick data to say how many evangelicals are here. It says about 50%. 50%. That means there's 3.5 million people that are far from Christ. I wouldn't consider that quite the Bible Belt. And, and, we, and yet, I think one of the ways that Satan distracts us to continue to talk about or not to take interest in the affairs of the world, instead of crying over the plight of the lost sinners that we see in the city, we continue to talk about the annoyance of these cultural Christians who continue to come, refuse to serve, refuse to give, and refuse to live on mission. And we continue to talk about that, and yet Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, and no one is weeping over the plight of the sinners in Houston. No one. And I think it's the scheme of the devil. Because I think this is one of the hardest places to reach people. Because words are familiar, and yet the gospel is foreign. And so you must preach the gospel. You must seek these people. You know, Jesus, he looked for the pain. He looked for lost people. And that was the first step in redeeming them. You know, and I know how you do it. I realize everything's big in Texas. I, I get it. I entered into a, uh, uh, what's called a steak eating contest once. I ate a 96-ounce steak. Everything's big in Texas. I get it. I've done it, all right? And even your churches are big. Your signs are huge, okay? I mean, there's no zoning here. You could do whatever you want. You know, put up anything you want. 
And I realize that, but I think the perceived misnomer is that if we could just somehow establish a church, and churches are a blessing, aren't they? The buildings are a blessing. And for those of you who are planting a church right now without a church, I mean, without a church building, man, it, it is a journey. I, I pray that one day that the Lord will provide a building for you where you could anchor yourself in that community as home and that you could reach your neighbors, all that stuff. But you know, it could be a real curse too because my daddy used to say this. My daddy used to say, you know what? There was a time when doctors, they used to be, um, they used to make these things called house calls. And, you know, and they would peruse and they would go through the villages and the towns. And whoever was sick, you know, the children, or the adults or the grandparents, whoever was sick, he would make these house calls and he would go into their house and minister to them. He would seek out the sick. But now what we do is we just actually get the, a ginormous sign. And even like the church planters, like portable church industry, what is the biggest banner we could possibly get? Because once we flag that and once we wave that in the air, maybe somebody will stop by. You see, this is not the way of Jesus. You realize Jesus was a rabbi, but he didn't operate out of a temple. You see, his ministry was described in the Greek as peripatetic, which means the ministry of walking around. Why? Because he didn't just save people. He sought to save people. And the question is, how is our searching going? How is our searching going? The second way we lose ourselves in the search is we become the people of the world. People of the world. Luke 10, one of the famed verses in evangelism, we see 12 disciples. They grew in numbers, and he sends out now the 72 to the mission field. It says in verse 1, after the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them, there's that word again, ahead of him, two by two, into every town and every place where he himself was about to go. Where was that? It was Jerusalem. And verse 2, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And verse 4 says, so carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one in the road. Greet no one in the road. Man, an introvert's dream. Oh my goodness, what do you mean? Are you serious? Am I, am I, am I to not greet? That, that sounds heavenly, that sounds wonderful. Wait, but no wallet, no shoes, no knapsack, no possessions, why? Doesn't that sound strange? And I'll tell you why it's so strange. Because in this Western world, we're trying to achieve two things. We're trying to reach the world while we're being worldly. And what Jesus is confronting us here is that mission sometimes contradicts those two ideas. Why? Because followers of Jesus are more concerned about the mission than their wardrobe, their, their finances, even the food that they're about to eat. Our appetite for the world should not be greater than the appetite that we have for the loss, for the glory of God. I went to seminary a long, long time ago, probably about the same time that David Fairchild went to, long time ago. And um, one of my dearest friends that I met there was an Indian brother who, who got trained here at Stateside and decided to go back to India to spend all of his family fortune to buy a compound, to actually establish an orphanage there, to, to gather unwanted girls. By the time that I got there, he had 119 girls living in this compound, and he was their dad. 
And he had all these staffs that he had hired to be their older sisters. And these girls were thriving. These were unwanted girls that now knew that there's not only a biological father that loved them or or adoptive father that loved them, but there's a heavenly father that loved them too forever, and they were thriving. But they also joined the seminary that he created right next door. And there were 70 seminarians, and 28 were being commissioned like you guys are being commissioned today. And 28 of them would go into the villages, all sorts of like places in India, so that they would actually have a church there. You know, he, all the days of his life, uh, lives in a 14 by 9 room. That's how he lives. A few months ago, I heard the tragic news, upon visiting one of these church planters, he was coming back on the scooter, and he got hit by a car and instantly died. And can I just tell you, just in all vulnerability, it just shattered my life. It shattered my heart. I, I, I just had visited him not too long ago. And, and he was one of those missionaries that were reproducing church planters. That, that was, I, I was hoping that it would go a long, long time, that his legacy would live on, on and on and on. And since then, I've, I've had the haunting dreams of Stephen being gone. And one of those dreams is Stephen actually encountering Jesus. And I see in heaven how he would get the crown of glory and say, Stephen, welcome. Welcome, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Come on in. And he would say, well, let me see your iPhone. I want to see some pictures of your days. See, iPhone's They're the only phones that make it in heaven, not Androids. (laughs) Amen. Um, And he would squirrel through all the glorious kids that he's adopted, all the church planters and all the villages and the pictures of people that are evangelizing, that are in these small villages that are not accounted for by Westerners. Could I ask you a question? What will God find in your phone? I was at Killings yesterday, Killings uh, STQ, you know. The first thing I do is take all the pictures of food. If you were to look at my iPhone, you have my kids, you have food, and you have more food and some airplane wing. I get it. We love traveling. I get it. We love food. I wonder if God is asking us, but do you love my people? Do you love my people? J.C. Ryle, speaking to about these 72 disciples, he wrote this. They ought to remind us of the necessity of simplicity and unworldliness in our daily life. We must beware of thinking too much about our meals and our furniture and our houses and all those many things which concern the life of the body. We must strive to live like the people whose first thoughts are about the immortal soul. We must endeavor to pass through the world like people who are not yet at home and are not overly troubled about the fare they meet with on the road and at the inn. Blessed are those who feel like pilgrims and strangers in this life and whose best things are all to come. See, missional theology shapes the mind. But secondly, Missional compassion shapes the heart. It shapes the heart. And the Matthew account of disciples being sent into the harvest, it said Jesus had compassion for the lost. And the question is, do we? And according to George Barna, 76% of all Americans believe in heaven. 
but only 32% believe in hell, and less than 1% of them believe that they'll end up there. Only 1%. Let me ask you, in your most conservative estimation, how many, what percent of people in the greater area of Houston are going to hell in their lifetime, at the end of their lifetime? How many? Listen, before you even figure that out, I want to tell you what a Puritan named Richard Sipp said. He said, outside of Christ, God is terrible. Now, he wasn't slandering God. He wasn't throwing shade at him. But what he's doing is he's saying, if we ever dare to come to God in the presence of God without our mediator Christ, then we're going to see a side of the wrath of God in ways that would shock us would shock us, see, to have the hope of heaven gone while your conscience is completely awakened. Regret and guilt are your everlasting status of your soul. There God will pour out his wrath to the living soul in extreme torment and pain, and that will be the fate of every lost person here in this city. And that's a devastating reality for those people who are apart from Christ, even the ones that we know by name. And I'll tell you, one of the primary reasons why Christians don't think about the consequence of hell is because not, not because you don't care, not because you don't try, because once you're saved, you realize it is nearly impossible to sense the real threat of hell anymore for the Christian. Why? Because the Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us, and one of the Spirit's job is to be the seal, the guarantee, and the witness for us. And so, essentially, if the Holy Spirit is working, and He absolutely is, He's constantly assuring us that you are sealed in His love. It is constantly, He's constantly working, testifying on behalf of us. And our lies sometimes that we're prone to believe that he's an expert witness to say your sins have been paid in full. And the, the Holy Spirit continues to remind us that we are the guarantors. We are the recipients of the utter guarantee that we are a child of God forever and ever. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And because of the security and the indwelling nature of the Holy Spirit reminds us of the security. In some sense, even if we want to imagine the threat of hell, we can't to the degree. It's like getting on a roller coaster. And, and the only reason why it is a thrill rather than a threat is because we know the straps. We know the bars. We have the harnesses and everything. But could you imagine for the unbeliever who doesn't have the harness or the strap and they're about to drop to their death? You see, in one sense, the unbeliever is in denial of that reality of death and hell. While the believer is absolutely secured in the grips of God, in the witness of God, in the guarantee of God, the seal of God. And therefore, he can't experience that kind of terror. So in between the denial of hell by an unbeliever and the, the absolute security that a believer feels from hell, in between is a reality of hell that is so devastating and terrifying than we could ever, ever imagine. You see, God is truly good. He is truly just. And every one of our unbelieving friends and family will encounter his righteous judgment, every single one. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus spoke of hell more than he did heaven. You know, Luke described, the Gospel of Luke describes hell as a place of torment and 
gnashing of teeth. The Gospel of John describes that, it, that if you do not abide by him, that you will be thrown into the lake of fire. And we know that Revelation, if you, your name is not in the, written in the book of life, you too will perish in the fire. And this is why Charles Spurgeon encourages young men to meditate on the condition of unbelievers. See, he, listen to what he says. He says, meditate with deep solemnity upon the fate of the lost sinner. He said, meditate. Like, really think. Dwell on these people, upon the fate of the lost sinner. And like Abraham, when you go up early to the place where you commune with God, cast an eye towards Sodom and see the smoke thereof going up like a smoke of a furnace. Shun all views of future punishment which will make it look appear less terrible. And so to take off the edge of your anxiety to save immortals from the quenchless flame. He's saying, whatever excuse that you have to pat yourself and rid of your anxiety, get rid of those things. And early in the morning where you meet with the Lord, take time to meditate upon all the lost people that we know, that we love. Why? Because if heaven is real, hell is real too. Edward Payson, a minister of the 1800s, he finished a powerful sermon on hell and the time that I read it for the first time, I thought it was one of those sermons. Have you ever heard a sermon or read a sermon that just basically like, changed your paradigm? This is one of them. Let me just read it to you. It's a little lengthy, um, but I, I can't say it better than what he wrote. He says, I cannot, must not, however, conclude without addressing a word my professing friends to you. And I hope you will bear with me if in view of such subject as this, I address you with apparent severity. An apostle teaches ministers that they must sometimes rebuke professing Christians sharply. But I trust my sharpness will be the sharpness of love. And I know that I shall say nothing to you half so severe as the reproaches which I have directed against myself while preparing the sermon. We all deserve perdition a thousand times for our stupid insensibility of the situation of those who are perishing around us. We profess to believe the word of God, but can you all prove that you believe it? Do you all act as if you, believe, if you believed it? What? Believe that many of your acquaintances, your children are in danger of the fate which has now been described? Dare you go to God and say, Lord, I believe thy word. I believe that all thy threatenings will be fulfilled and then turn away and coolly pursue your worldly business without uttering one agonizing cry for those who are exposed to these threatenings? Dare you go and claim relationship to Christ and profess to have his spirit without which you are none of his and then make no effort or only a few faint efforts to save those from whom he shed not only tears but blood? Go! I may say to such, go, inconsistent, cruel, hard-hearted professors. Go slumber over the ruin of immortal souls. Talking to parents, wrap yourself up in your selfish temporal interests and say, I have no time to spare for rescuing others from everlasting burnings. Go wear out your life in acquiring property for your children and leave their souls to perish in the fire that never shall be quenched. And talking to the doctors in this congregation, he says, go adorn their bodies and banish from them, if possible, the seeds of disease like cancer, but leave in their bosoms that immortal worm which will gnaw them forever. And when God asks, where is thy child, thy brother, thy friend? Reply with impious Cain, I know not. 
I care not. Am I his keeper? Could I tell you, we daren't ever say something like that to God. But most of our lifestyle declares it on its own. Am I his keeper? Am I the keeper of my neighbor? Am I the keeper of every unbeliever in Houston? If heaven and hell are real, then our silence is not a matter of neutrality, but it's a matter of guilt and sin. You realize that? See, suburban pastors, the idea that God will actually reach out and preach the gospel to himself to a lost nation while we go about our suburban lives, we'll do our church thing, pursuing our hobbies, is at best a convenient fiction. But the inconvenient truth is that heaven and hell are real, and there are people who are dying every day, and this, their destination is the place of the lake of fire, and they're perishing around us forever. And because people are perishing, historically Christians, man, I, and I, love, I love coming to places like this because I'm reminded that many of you who stood up here and that were commissioned today are really our missionaries. And I love missionaries. They inspire me. Like Hudson Taylor, who didn't go across the seas to see the Great Wall of China, but he saw the great number of people that were far from Christ. Adoniram Judson, one of my favorite missionaries that went to Burma. He was reaching not only a, a new frontier for the sake of travel, but he went looking for a new nation that was forgotten. And D.L. Moody once said, if I believed there was no hell, I'm sure I would be off tomorrow to America. And perhaps the reason why God has you in this city is that Houston one day will be a very hard place to go to hell in. Very hard. Because you are faithfully seeking the lost, preaching and declaring the gospel, and many lost are being found. Would you please, for Christ's sake, and I appeal to you, have compassion for the lost. Will you wake up soberly in reality that as much as you like to think that this is called a Bible Belt. There is a greater culture of lostness than there is found. Would you believe that? And would you act upon it? Would you care about it? Will you talk about Houston differently? That you would talk about Houston and its lostness like I talk about my city's lostness. And third, missional discipleship shapes our practice. So theology shapes our mind, compassion shapes our heart. And now discipleship shapes actually our practice, our hands, what we do. You see, in John chapter 10, Jesus, from 10, 12 disciples, remember, he sends the 72 into the mission field. I always thought this was curious because we all know the 12's names, but do we know any of the 72? We don't. All we know is that they were sent and they went. And in some ways... That's glorious because they never held office of an apostle. They never wrote a book in the Bible. These are regular, ordinary Christians. And the only thing we know about them is not necessarily their inward life, but their outward life and their action to go to every city, every nook and cranny towards Jerusalem and preach the gospel, which begs the question, what would it look like for our discipleship pathway in our churches to primarily move from only an inward discipline to an outward missional discipline? What would it look like for us to not have two programs in our church 
discipleship and missions, but have one program of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples for the glory of Jesus. What would that look like? That we, we say oftentimes in our context, our church, we're not a Whataburger, we're in and out. Because you could go to Whataburger and get all sorts of different things, and in and out you only get one thing, burgers. What would it look like for your church context that how you disciple people is always towards that mission? That that is a pathway towards mission. That it is the same program. And this is a biblical model. Alan Roxbury says that the movement of the gospel starts with God and it always ends in the world. It, it, this is what it looks like because you look at the Trinity and the relationship within the Trinity, it's a sending community where the Father sends the Son and the Son sends the Spirit and the Spirit scatters the churches. And it's no wonder why in the book of Acts you see 40 miracles written and 39 of them happens outside of the church. 39 of them. And yet, what we wish in all the miracles is that the miracles will be revealed inside of our church and not in our neighborhoods, not in our communities. And if we're a missional people longing for the manifestation of the Spirit to work in our cities, we would see more miracles outside of the church than inside of the church. And that would be one way that we could actually measure missional living. You see, perhaps the miracles should be mostly outside. So what would it look like to make disciples like the 72? I want to close just by giving you three practices, um, just mainly from our church, what we try to do to constantly be on the edge of the missional pulse. See, we've, we've grown and we've struggled and we've, we've gone to be hyper-missional and then, and then just hyper, you know, meeting the needs of people and we've gone back and forth and it's not that our philosophy has changed but our energy has changed and, and, and yet we always want to live on the edge of missional living. And so, what are three things that you could maybe commit to to turn the tide? First, real quick, discover their cause. Discover their cause. I spoke to some, some people in our network, some friends in our network already about this. On Easter, uh, we had 178 brand new people who came to Christ this Easter, 178. Every year, our goal is to reach 100 people for the cause of Christ, from lostness to found. That's our hope. One day on Easter, across six services, the Lord blessed us with 178 professed, written, this is my very first time that I'm professing Christ as my Lord and Savior, Now I believe I'm saved by His grace, kind of card. I mean, it's amazing, right? And can I just tell you what we do? We do two things. Number one, we rejoice like crazy. We party. Why? Because it's biblical. It is that magnificent of a miracle for somebody who is dead in his transgressions, already alive in the spirit. Amen? I mean, that's ridiculous. That's the crazy thing that we see. But here's the second thing we tell the new believer. Now you're a new believer. Man, we're ce celebrating. We're killing the fattened calf. We're in California. We kill some veggie burgers. Man, it's all good. We're celebrating like crazy. The second thing is we say, you have not been saved for yourself. You've been saved for a cause. And we say, what is your cause? And pastors, leaders, denomination leaders, whoever you are in this room, the church 
And the primary role of the church is to preach the gospel, to equip their people, and also mobilize your people to live the Ephesians 4 life. To, to mobilize them to, to live out the cause and the unique burden that God has given them and gifted in. And so this is what we say. We, we ripped off Home Depot's motto. You know what Home Depot's motto is? They say, you can do it. We could help. See, our church exists to equip our people, to equip people for their cause. Here's the second thing. Equip the saints. Equip the saints. For the last few years, um, just my personal testimony is that I've been meeting with some atheist friends. One of them is a Stanford professor. One of them is an engineer in Facebook. And the other one <clears throat> is another brilliant engineer. And we get together, and um, we drink some Kool-Aid and Gatorade. And we just hang out. And, um, and they really have some honest questions. They really have some honest questions about our faith. And I realize that if we do not equip our people uh, to answer these questions, that only pastors know the answers. But yet, if we don't equip our people to answer some of these questions directly, then what we're essentially doing is we're creating a pathway in which their mission will always be to invite them to church. That's it. And let the professionals do it. But rather, if you are to be committed to equip your people um, to answer some of these questions, to engage with some semblance of confidence, then they too will become missionaries in their relationship, in their neighborhoods. So here are some of the questions that the world has about Christianity that I just gathered from my friends. First, religion can't actually prove that God exists, right? Second, religion is science denying, right? Religion can't explain suffering and evil. Religion is just a crutch for the reality of no afterlife. Reality, I mean, religion is divisive. Religion is sexually repressive. Religion is oppressive to LGBTQIA community. And religion is oppressive to women's rights. And these are the conversations that I often have with my friends. And my experience is that most pastors are not evangelists. But my experience is also that there are many people in your church who are evangelists. You just haven't trained them up yet. There are many gifts in the church, so diverse, so unifying, so beautiful, and there are evangelists in your church that don't know that they're evangelists. Would you equip them? Would you call them? Would you remind them of their particular call? And third, and this is a personal passion of mine, is to pray for the lost. Pray for the lost. It sounds so simple, but you know, Luke 10, chapter, verse 2 reminds us, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what? Pray earnestly. Pray, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And I love what Chad has told me is that you guys were a part of the Awaken Houston, which was like a month-long prayer and fasting initiative that you guys had. Man, I love that. I mean, I'm inspired by that. I'm grateful for that. You are absolutely on the right track. This is exactly what we are to do. And yet, let me ask you, are you praying or is your church praying? Are you teaching your people to pray? In fact, in our church, you can't ever start a missional community or a small group without first praying for lost people. This is what we say. We're like, this is your cause. 
This is why you and I are saved. And so we must pray and long for the harvest, that we might be the workers, that God will send these people, because it is God's authority, it is his sovereignty to which he will save, not just our efforts. And the good news is, because although we have many inadequacies in sharing the gospel, we pray to the Lord of the harvest who has zero inadequacies at all. And that's what we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest who has no inadequacies. In fact, I believe many of our churches are only seeing the kind of or even the number of conversions that are reciprocal to the amount of prayers that we do. If, if, if you are not converting a lot of people for Christ's sake, perhaps that is an indicator of your commitment to pray. Perhaps those two things are in some way a corollary. You know, our prayers remind us that God is actually sovereign over our mission field, and it is his power that we need. And biblically, we are to be faithful to share the gospel and really leave the results to him. And in fact, every person who has ever come to Christ through me has never come because of a flawless presentation of the gospel. I could just assure you one thing. Every single time I've ever shared the gospel, it was flawed. That's the only assurance that I could give you. But that every single um, declaration of the gospel that I've ever preached or I've ever shared with anybody and that they crossed the line from death to life, every single one has been lorded over by God. And God brought them over. God applied his power. Yes, it was the Lord of the harvest who does the converting anyway. And so it's like, I'll close with this story because it just reminded me so much of what God does. Just recently I was playing... Um, with my two youngest in their elementary school. And we were confronted by a basketball team. And the basketball team rolled up on us to my two little elementary school kids and they said, hey, you wanna play a game? And it seemed so unfair to my kids. They're like, daddy, they're gonna kill us. They're in uniform, they have like shiny balls and they're ready to go. And you know, we're disadvantaged. And not only my kids are small, but I'm Asian. You know, Asians don't play basketball that much. And so I'm like, man, like, but this is what I told them. I said, kids, don't worry. Daddy plays some basketball. They're like, you do? I'm like, absolutely. Plus, they're all fourth graders. So let's go. <laughs> let's go. So these fourth graders roll up on us, and we start playing. And my daughter's like, I don't know how to play, Daddy. And I said, just chuck the ball towards that little metal hoop. And what I'll do is when you chuck it near there, I'll catch the ball. <laughs> and then I will dominate over these little fourth graders. <laughs> and I will shame them to the place where they'll go home and never want to play basketball again. And so this is precisely what happened. My kids don't know how to play basketball, but they just chucked it towards the basket, and guess who was always under the basket? Asian Shaq, boom, right? And I would just throw it up, both hands, lay up here, lay up there. Guess what? We won 7-0. We didn't even have uniforms. 7-0. And with our imperfect words and our sinful hearts, all we're simply called to do is to seek and to share the gospel. You see, we are just to chuck the ball towards the rim. And it is our Heavenly Father who will catch it. And it will dunk it in the face of Satan. 
It is his work. It is his power. It is his sovereignty that will assure our victory and their victory. And the only way you can be a poor evangelist is if you never shoot. Will you just shoot for the glory of God? And he will do the work. He will surely do it. Let me pray for us. 